Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. As always, you can follow my adventures on tobymiller.org. And I'm here with my friend and colleague, Professor Jennifer Holt. Hello, Jennifer. How are you? Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Jennifer teaches at the University of California, Santa Barbara. But you're not in Santa Barbara now, Jennifer. Where are you and why are you in this place? I'm in lovely Riverside, California. (laughs) And I'm here because I have the opportunity to talk to your class today about net neutrality and digital distribution of television. And so I thought, why not do a podcast at the same time? As I think they say in Ovid, WTF. (laughs) Or as they say in the Valley, I go and she goes and we're all. (laughs) To quote two important influences. So you have a new-ish book out. Yes. Could you tell us about this book? Where's your secretary? (laughs) I was going to give a kind of Gary Busey answer, but I won't. So (laughs) tell us about this book. It's called Empires of Entertainment. Empires of Entertainment? Yes. E of E. E of E. E of E. And um, it's about the deregulation of broadcast, cable, and film from the Reagan era through the Telecommunications Act. That's what it says on the cover, but really it goes from kind of a little bit of the Nixon administration through the Comcast-NBC merger. Now, uh, let me interrupt at this point. You should know that about 50% of listeners are from outside the U.S. So whilst the U.S. is our biggest place for listening, 50 other countries are represented. So people will know probably Uh Reagan-Nixon, but they won't necessarily have all the references in terms of some of the, the stuff you're covering. Okay. So the... Telecommunications Act of 1996 was one of the largest deregulatory um, bills ever and kind of the first major rewriting of the 1934 Communications Act. So um, it was a moment that allowed for a tremendous amount of convergence between industries and consolidation and concentration. So the book looks at kind of the trajectory of how we went from having separate industries of film being its own industry, cable being its own industry, and broadcast being its own industry, often at at odds with one another, suing one another, um, trying to, you know, litigate one another out of business, to them being part of commonly held, you know, part of a media conglomerate or commonly held companies that are part of the same parent company. So a, a famous film studio like Warner Brothers can become a conglomerate that includes the delivery of cable services, television through cable. Cable, television, publication, publishing, um, all kinds of online. I mean, they were part of, Time Warner was part of one of the worst mergers in history, right? The AOL merger. Um, And that has, they've since divorced and it was a terrible marriage and by the second anniversary of that merger there were like six or seven books out about what a terrible deal it was and um, but yeah how we went from these separate industries to them being all part of one media conglomerate and what I was interested in was the legal and regulatory path Mm -hmm. because we often take for granted um, oh well I guess you know the paramount decree just 
kind of stopped being enforced. But I was really interested in the kind of wonky, nitty-gritty details of why and how. Why and how. Can you take us back to the Paramount Decree? Because this is the high point, really, of the trust-busting activities of the Justice Department trying to pull apart the Fordist Hollywood studio system, isn't it? Yeah. Can you just fill people in a little bit? Sure. So, um, the, you know, big five vertically integrated studios had been, it had been a long, quite a long lawsuit that finally wound its way to the Supreme Court where it's called the Paramount Decrees because they were, Paramount was the studio that was named first um, of the five, but they were basically forced to divest their theater chains and really they had they could have picked from just divesting one element of their business but their production their their studios were where they held all of their capital the distribution is where all of the money is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so the exhibition was kind of the natural choice to divest because that's where all the uncertainty is really um and so they were forced to kind of eliminate one aspect of their business. It became the theater chains. Um, there was also a lot of antitrust activity going on in the theaters themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, the government in 1948 forced the theaters to kind of end their nice long run of being vertically integrated companies. So then they became producer distributors. The theaters were separate. Um, and then in my research, one day I just, I was in the antitrust division of the Department of Justice doing research. I was so happy. I love it there. There's just such amazing things that you get for free as a taxpayer. You can ask for photocopies of boxes and boxes of stuff. And if you're nice, they will give you whatever you want. And I was there and I saw an interesting memo that just, said that the Department of Justice would no longer enforce the Paramount decrees, that they weren't going to spend the money to take it off the books, but they were just going to turn a blind eye. And then I just thought, you know, I found that when I was a graduate student, and I thought, well, this is so important that surely someone else would have talked about this moment or kind of maybe it's not as important if I'm the one who's finding this piece of paper and it's really an interesting kind of thing to happen as a grad student to not really know how to make sense of what I thought was a very important piece of paper and it just turns out that um, I don't think I think that people just kind of most scholarship kind of accepts that this is the way it goes but it doesn't really interrogate how that came about or how that memo came about or what even what the context was but we can get to that but in any event they they just decided not to enforce it anymore and then the studios started buying theaters again between 1986 and 1988 and by the end of the 80s they were they held the same percentage of theaters that they did during the 40s so it was just kind of interestingly enough it was still there as this kind of facade for the studios to hide behind someone because it was still on the books, but it wasn't enforced at all. Mm. One of the things about a decree, consent decree, is that of course it doesn't actually involve finally a decision by the Supreme Court, which would be binding 
and the government couldn't undo. It involves an agreement by the parties, in this case the federal government yeah. and yeah. the studios, to hold back from going to that final yeah. phase. Uh, it would have been another matter again had there been a Supreme Court decision. Yeah. Right. So, tell us about this document. This is rather exciting. Well, th this was just one of the interesting documents I found. I, I spoke to the last living litigator of the Paramount Decree at the Justice Department when I was there. His name was Bernard Hollander, and he was, you know, 90 years old, and he still went to work every day in his VW bus and was um, quite a character and um, was a really interesting interview. One of the many things I learned while doing this project is the higher the level of interview, the less information you get. Um, I also interviewed Jack Valenti for the project and he told me, of course, Hollywood has never had any antitrust problems. <laughs> and so, you know, that wasn't very helpful, but it was a lot of fun to talk to him. Mm. Um, Jack Valenti was an aide to Lyndon Baines Johnson during his presidency and then went on to run the Motion Picture Association of America for four decades. Mm -hmm. He's He was, he's now deceased, maybe three and a half feet shorter than Jennifer. Yes, at least. <laughs> and that usually causes problems for me when I walk into an office and the man is three and a half feet shorter for me than me, but it, it was a, didn't bother him at all. He was, you know, 10 feet tall in his own mind and he had no problems. He's our spiritual uncle. Yeah. What was he like? He was the nicest, most warm, friendly, generous person. I wrote him a thank you note after, and this is the best part, this is so old school. Mm. He wrote me a hand note on my, on a copy of my mm -hmm. Thank you note back and thank me for coming in and sent me a copy of his um, public speaking book, How to Improve Your Public Speaking. And he was, I mean, I was a grad student. He was, you know, he had senators calling when I was there. He had the network news calling when I was there. He And he kept the time for me that he had scheduled. He was, I think, just an incredible ambassador you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard him testify before. His, his testimony before Congress was always the most eloquent, lyrical. You know, he quoted, Jesus, he, he quoted, you know, Greek mythology and poetry and the Bible. And he, there was no end to what he could ask. He was a huge bullshitter. An excellent say. one. Yeah. I mean, an excellent one. That was he, what he was paid to do. Mm -hmm. He was paid a million dollars a year to be a great bullshitter mm -hmm. for the bullshit industry. He could have been a president of the University of California. He would have been a great one. I would have loved that. So, this document that spills the beans on the decision not to enforce mm -hmm. the decree, this is from the Reagan era, the 80s? Yeah, 1985. William Baxter was his... Um, head of antitrust and and this is the era when in television we've gone through a massive deregulation haven't we in the 80s mm -hmm. uh, is that relevant to your research too? oh yeah I mean there's I was looking at how all of cable broadcast 
and film were being deregulated along, you know, in parallel universes, mm -hmm. right? And then ultimately mm -hmm. they come together in 2009 mm -hmm. when Comcast decides to buy NBC Universal and it's this moment when I had finished writing the book and then that Comcast decision was announced and I cried and drank for a week. I think I was, I think we had Skype <laughs> sessions yes, over this. I'm sure. And then I, after being completely depressed, I realized it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me for the book. I mean, I'm against the concept of further media consolidation, but selfishly for the book, it worked out as the perfect conclusion because it shows the progressive deregulation of cable. This is all the revenge of cable, this, this merger. And this is, just to uh, tell people, this is Comcast, which is one of the biggest cable outfits in the United States, merging with NBC, uh, which up to that point had been owned by General Electric, which still owns 49%. yeah. But this was a huge thing in terms of the idea of not allowing concentrated cross-media ownership and, as Jennifer says, an intra-class struggle that was being resolved at some level by the, the ruling class being separated between uh, technology, software and stories and images, if you like, these sort of three great objects mm -hmm. becoming one in some sense. And this is the triumph of cable for you. Yeah. Explain that in the light of the slightly umbilical expression that's floating around the traps now, namely cord cutting. Mm -hmm. Well, Or do we say umbilical in the United States? Um, umbilical. We say umbilical. <laughs> Thank you, old thing. I should say Jennifer is much younger than me, of course. <laughs> but anyway, uh, at, this, at the moment we're being told cords are being cut, i.e. people don't want landlines anymore, they don't want cable or satellite anymore, even though they're using cables and satellites because it's all through the internet. You're saying this is the great triumph of cable. Well, this this merger was because it was the first time a cable company bought a major film studio and a broadcast network. That had never happened before, and that could only happen um, after everything that happened in the book, <laughs> after all of the deregulatory initiatives that took that place. Had gone on. Yeah, it it was really fascinating. So in in the end, I you know, made peace with that merger as the perfect conclusion for the book. Um, but as far as cord cutting, um, you know, we'll see. Now, lucky for Comcast, they own all this content, right? And that's, you, you, can, you can cut the cord, but you still want the content. So they still have, they still have the power in owning a lot of content that they still can license. Um, how valuable their delivery systems become as far as cable television we'll see it's it's we're a long way from you know everybody cutting the cord our students certainly are and this is a kind of a continual narrative i hear when i speak to industry executives that they're all convinced that our students who when you take polls you know do they watch television how do they watch television they watch it on their computer they do not sit on a couch and watch the television set Executives are convinced once they have jobs and disposable income, they'll buy a flat screen and they will come back to the couch and watch television the way that people have for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. I totally disagree. I think their habits are ingrained. Their expectations are have developed since they were, 
you know, kind of old enough to play with a keyboard. And I don't think they're going to suddenly adopt this kind of top-down model of, oh, I'll wait till 8 o'clock on Thursday to watch the show that I want to watch. That's highly unlikely. So um, I, I think that generation is a bunch of cord cutters. As for the rest of us, I think that will take quite a while. That said, Comcast owns plenty of, you know, internet connections as well. So they're not, don't cry for them, Argentina. No fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> so this merger announced in 09, I guess, it's only just... End actually, of 09, yeah. It only just, just happened legally, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah. That ended up being a nice Ten. end of your book. Mm-hmm. 2010, was it? Yeah. And it's just gone through legally yeah. in the last few months. Ended up being a nice end of your book, yeah, because it it neatly brought together all these players. It sure did. Now, what about the argument that says convergence is almost harmonic? It's a sort of hippie shit thing to do with technology and people becoming one. This cybertarian logic we often confront, and that it's got nothing to do with things like deregulation, law, ownership, control, and so on. I think just that's a very um limited vision of what it really is. I think a lot of discussion of convergence is completely ahistorical, which really bugs me. Mm. Um, I find that very problematic. Convergence is not a new thing. The word convergence is not a new word. It was used in the 60s during the Computer One inquiries when the FCC was looking into... Federal Communications Commission. The Federal Communications Inquiry, sorry, when they were looking into the problems that were starting to um, manifest in the regulation of data and computer networks. And they didn't really know how to start to establish regulatory paradigms for different delivery systems of data and information. And they started this series of inquiries. And in 1966 was when they first talked about the issue of convergence. So. That's as far as in regulatory language, but I mean, we've had convergence of media forms and narrative and um, stars and marketing since the beginning of all entertainment, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, vaudeville, moved, radio, people moved film, from, uh, advertising to radio to cinema to television, up and down and sideways exactly. for a very long time, and it wasn't labeled convergence but it is the same dynamic that we talk about now and um, I I just wish there was a bit more historical inflection on some of those conversations. Why did all this deregulation take place? Um, well the interesting thing about how regulation works is it's largely political. There is no established standard for how concentrated an industry is allowed to become. There's no, um, there can only be eight firms or there can only be 17 firms and that's the limit. It's all subject to interpretation and there are different measures. Some people listening might know things that like about the HHI indexes and stuff. So there are measurements that are use, you know, kind of quasi-scientific ones to gauge concentration in an industry. But there's no hard and fast rule about how that's interpreted. And that's completely up to whoever's in power. And so we had um, a president and his administration that was 
wholly committed to deregulation across industries. So we had the deregulation at that same time of banking, of healthcare, of trucking, of airlines, of all types of industry across the economy, right? And that was his belief. The interesting thing was that he did not, President Reagan did not have this consistent approach when it came to broadcast television because um, the FinCEN rules, the financial interest and syndication rules that had been in place since 1970, these prevented broadcast stations or broadcast networks from owning their primetime programming and from owning the syndicated programming that they broadcast. Um, it was designed in order to allow for more independent producers, but really all it wound up doing was solidifying the Hollywood studios as the main suppliers of television programming. So these were set to expire in 1983, and you would think, right, if you're deregulating most sectors of the economy, this is a, a moment to extract government f oversight from an industry, it's a moment to be hands-off, be laissez-faire, and allow that to expire. But the night before, Mark Fowler, who was the chairman of the FCC under President Reagan, he was set to testify and um, announce that the FCC was going to eliminate these rules. Um, President Reagan had a closed-door meeting with Lou Wasserman, Lou Wasserman was his former agent when President Reagan was an actor, starring in many Warner Brothers B-movies, um, and also the head of one of the most powerful studios in Hollywood at the time. And after that meeting, President Reagan came out and told his own FCC chairman to reverse their position on the FinCEN rules. And they stayed in place for another 12 years. So that's a, this, an interesting moment of inconsistency due to personal loyalties, right? That, so we can't, it doesn't always proceed along political lines that we would think. Um, you know, President Clinton, who was the leader of the Democratic Party, signed the, one of the biggest deregulatory bills that we've ever seen. In this, this is country. the 1996 legislation yes. of which you spoke. Yes. Uh, of course, Reagan did deregulate bits of television. I oh, mean, right of reply, and so on. And yeah. Equal time were and cable. I mean, very important. Yeah. Elements. Yeah. Uh, and cable. Yeah. So, but his, you know, his loyalties to Lou Wasserman prevented him from allowing the broadcast industry to profit from those same initiatives. I was once on a panel with Ferris, who was Carter's chair. And yeah. The last, along with Nick Johnson, civilized person involved in the FCC, as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. He said to me that <laughs> under the Fowler regime, the idea of the public interest was simply done away with, and that, that had successive confirmation hearings of chairs of the Federal Communications Commission since. This concept had essentially been unsayable that this was about supposed efficiency and efficacy and effectiveness of markets and wasn't about the public interest, which is in their bloody enabling legislation. It's never gone away. Mm -hmm. It's been there for 78 years, but you wouldn't know it half the time. Right. Absolutely. And, and you know, even Mark Fowler has famously said, um, let the public's interest be the public, define the public interest. So let whatever 
we watch be the public interest totally disregarding the fact that we only have so especially in the 80s we only had so many choices of what to watch so now what about his other famous statement television is a toaster with pictures Mm -hmm. tell us a bit about that what do you think of that i think it's um an, an amazing soundbite. I think it's a perfect representation of his philosophy, and it's. I like that because um, there are no officials today that I can think of who would kind of so boldly put it that way. Um, it just shows the lack of consciousness and even fear of any kind of pushback that he had to kind of be so baldly deregulatory. And what he meant by that, he, he was saying television is just like any other appliance. It's just like a toaster with pictures. And if you don't like what's on it, turn it off. Um, and the federal government's role is to make sure it doesn't explode in your face physically and burn you, as it should be with a toaster. Right. right? We should make sure that appliances are safe, but nothing else. Pretty much, yeah. And so it, it just kind of was a very clear representation of his total disregard for the public interest really you know for protecting any kind of or preserving any kind of diversity or um alternative forms and types of expression um you know he famously got rid of 90 percent of regulations when he was in office it mostly about around children's tv so that's the age when kids in the eight who grew up in the 80s grew up worshiping consumer products not characters so it, it became all of these shows based around products that you buy so whatever like my little pony and i grew up earlier than that but i a lot of those shows are emblematic of that transition in the FCC's attitude. Take us back, if you could, back to the early days of the Old West. When you were a child watching television, I guess in Illinois. In Chicago, yeah. In Chicago, Illinois. Um, Those were good days. What was good about them? Share it with the group. Make it all get bigger and make us all happy. I, I mean... Television was great. I had a sense of, I, I didn't know then, but I had a sense of kind of what the local channels were um, as opposed to the networks. And there was a separate identity and a distinct sensibility that you could get from the local PBS channel or the local UHF channels that. Public broadcasting and ultra high. Yeah, so that you, there was something quirky and different about some channels. It wasn't so homogenized. Um, plus, it was the era when, you know, my whole family, literally three generations, sat on the couch and watched All in the Family together. And I didn't understand it. I loved it because my grandfather laughed at it, so I thought that was fun, you know. And we watched MASH together. We watched shows together. And now technology has evolved and narrow casting and niche Broadcasting has evolved in such a way that we only watch TV by ourselves with our earbuds on. I've seen photos of you watching TV with your dog and a bottle of Jack Daniels. It's great. Isn't that recreating family? What's What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's two generations. <laughs> but no, I, I wanted to, uh, to hone in for a second on this question because 
we do get lots of lamentations for the idea of lost community, lost togetherness, lost connectedness, mm -hmm. particularly with families, mm -hmm. with the idea that the shared televisual experience, same program, same time, same room, same set, mm -hmm. manages to bind the family together. In the case of some families like mine, the less binding, <laughs> the better, given yeah, how oh, horrific yeah. they were. But maybe for yeah. some people this was a good thing. Well, it was also a moment when the crazy dysfunctionalness kind of uh, everyone focused it onto the television, oh, so, the so they stopped, like yeah. you know, eating one another and focused all of that onto the onto the show. Interesting. Yeah. So something like Mesh, yeah, which for years held lots of ratings records in the United yeah. States, still well regarded, still in syndication and so on. Twenty five years after the last show, more. And something that went on for about 10 years. There's a Marx Brothers style studied irreverence there to authority. But when you're a teenager, fucking fantastic. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah, it takes a while to figure it out, I think. They had, I always thought the laugh track was odd on MASH. I could never figure out um, why it came when it did. I thought they said a lot of funny stuff that nobody laughed at. And I, I thought that was really odd. But I, once you kind of get that sensibility that's happening and they're kind of, um, you know, very early brand of super cynicism on television, um, it's hilarious and it appeals no matter how old you are. I well, think. that's the thing. For me, it helped to destabilize family power uh -huh. as a topic and teacher power in high school. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm older than you, but I'm when it first came out, when I was a teenager, it was wonderful to have people who were good at what they did and very smart and very witty and appealing to women mm -hmm. and utterly disobedient of institutional yeah. stricture. Yeah. Uh, so, for, in terms of school and in terms of family, it gave me a wonderful model of. Yeah, it's true. I remember freaking out about that too, just thinking, oh, they can't do that. I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe they're so disrespectful of authority and then it, it was a great kind of image for me. Hot Lips Hulahan. Yeah. Hot Lips. Remember her. <laughs> but in terms of the family being brought together by this, you said that sometimes in your family people would enact the difficulties they had interpersonally via characters or via stories. Is, is that, have I understood that correctly? Um, I'm not sure. Well, they would displace the tensions of the family onto what they would say yes, on screen, yes. is that right? So, you know, I'm yeah. just saying, if your family's a little crazy, they they kind of stop being a little crazy when a great TV show is on. So it's, it's peace breaks out. Yeah, in some ways, Interesting. I think, yeah. So it's not necessarily about stimulating conversation, but it's about No, God forbid, because that's... <laughs> the problem. <laughs> but it's a good pacifier of the group. In, uh, a, a model of how we can do something together and not be at one another's throats? Yeah, until the kids, you know, until there's dissension in what you want to watch. As long as everyone agrees, as long as there's a figure in the house that gets to determine what is on, which I think, you know, the power of the the holder of the clicker. So, right? Before there was a clicker, that, and, which is interesting. Yeah, right. The, the person who would lean forward yes. and physically or turn them tell the, a kid to get oh, up. Or you it. over yes. there. Yes. Yes, Anne Gray and Dave Morley have both written very interestingly about this, mm -hmm. haven't they? Whether or not the remote button in the contemporary era is pink or blue, for example, mm -hmm. as gendered devices. Yes. Very interesting. And, and how you used to make a younger sibling into a remote. I am very 
skill was very skilled at that. Were you the person who was you became? A I'm older, so I oh, was. You made other children uh, yes, into remotes. Yes, it was a very skillful thing until they rebelled, and then they would turn the volume all the way up and leave, and so then you had to get off the couch and not only change the channel, but then also fix everything that they messed up. Thank God you suffer in silence. You never <laughs> complain about anything that goes wrong. It's really impressive. So, okay, you're growing up in Chicago, Illinois, and you're watching TV. How does that, how do you transform from that into being a wonk lady? How did you become a wonk I don't lady? know. I mean, I, I was clearly born to be a professor of film and media just because I, I loved it. I used to fake sick all as a child just so I could stay home and watch reruns all day. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to watch Sea Hunt. Sea Hunt, Lloyd Bridges. Yeah, I wanted Hello to with watch. with shirt off. Yeah. And oh. I wanted to watch Price is Right. I wanted to watch Lucy. I wanted to watch just the, I just wanted to watch TV. That's all I wanted to do. So it makes sense that this is what I wound up doing. But then as far as getting into the super nerdy, wonky policy stuff, I have um, an attorney in my family, my dad's an attorney, and I was always kind of, you know, wavering. Maybe I would be a professor, maybe I would be a, an attorney. The professor thing is much, the life is much more appealing. The, you know, what I get to do, what we get to do in this job is much more in sync with my own spirit. And so I went the professor way, but this allows me a way into some of those other interests. I'm, I'm really fascinated with how the law works and how we can apply that materially to what we're experiencing on the screen. It's fascinating to me. There's such a rich world behind all of these shows that we're actually able to watch. So when you watched Lucy... Mm -hmm. Were you interested in how it was made and so on? Because it was one of those shows that was a little more self-reflexive and open about these things than the other. Yeah, often. yeah. I mean, later I was, as a kid, I just thought she was the funniest thing I had ever seen. Later I started to get really interested in, you know, the process that brought us Lucy. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you said that you, the things you like about being a professor, what are they? Oh, they're that... You know, to some degree, if you can resist all of the forces that conspire to kind of make you a cynic, um, there is opportunity and possibility with our work to expand how the culture at large views media, to expand our students' view of you know, the power of the image, um, to make connections between art and cultural policy and start to have an impact on a larger dialogue that really matters. I mean, even in the sense of thinking about deregulation, our country has complete amnesia. Our economy tanked in 2008 because of deregulation. And, and during this election cycle, everyone's to, you know, hooray, more deregulation during these Republican debates. It's not possible if you're paying attention to applaud deregulation. So, I don't know, maybe this kind of work brings some more of that into perspective. I just think there's, um, I don't know, more opportunity to do a little more fulfilling mm -hmm. 
work with our teaching and our research than um, the work you do as an attorney. And Jennifer Holt, going back a little earlier than your recent book, you also produced another one, which is, at least in part, I think, directed very much at students. Yeah. Even though it's got original research in it. And you co-edited this book. Could you tell us yes. a bit about sure. the, the book and your co-editor? And yes, I co-edited the book with Elisa Perrin, who is a professor at Georgia State University, and I knew her from UT Austin, where we... University of Texas. University of Texas at Austin, where um, we both worked with Tom Schatz, and we were there at different times, but he kind of connected us and said, you should know each other. And um, we were both teaching media industries classes, but working so hard to kind of find foundational tools and resources for the class to read. There was really no organized consideration of media industries as a sub-discipline of film and media studies. And so we really just wanted to provide some kind of initial stab at a roadmap or a blueprint or a way of thinking about this field. And you were extremely important in that endeavor because you were the first person we asked and you said yes and then we were able to tell everybody else, well, Toby Miller's doing it. And it they came flocking. We had no problem getting people on board. So that was really great. And we're, you know, I love your essay in that collection. It's, it's really a fun, spirited piece that has a lot, so much energy. That's why I always love your writing. Well, it's it's a book about media industries, right? Mm -hmm. And what are some of the things that you guys run through in the volume? Well, we kind of introduce it, we introduce it as, um, you know, does the world really need one more field of study? And kind of look at it as a field of study and look at the various kind of disciplinary influences on media industry studies. So we go through a history of, you know, we talk about the Frankfurt School, we talk about Sociolo sociologists that have studied industry, we talk about economists that have studied media, we talk about different tendencies in film and media studies like star studies or genre studies that have focused on industrial determinants and just try to give people ways in which this um, area has a historical trajectory and has evolved and developed and um, that there are tools for thinking about media industries that are different and unique than you need to think about the home appliance industry or you know any other industry. It's not just a toaster with pictures. It's not just a toaster after all. And, um, and then we kind of laid the book out into history, essays on history, essays on theory, and essays on method. And I think it's provided a lot of people with great teaching tools. I think every essay in the book has, it's funny, people give me feedback on it and say, oh, you know, these two pieces were huge hits in my class. But it's not always the same two pieces. It's Everyone kind of has great feedback about a lot of the essays in the book. And it's just been a nice resource for teaching. I think it was aimed at the undergraduates. I think it comes in a little bit at upper level undergraduates or early graduate level. Um, but it's nice. And since then, Amanda Lotz 
and Tim Havens came out with a textbook on media industries and there's been a lot more being published in specifically about this field of study. So it came at a good time. Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between approaches from economics, from media studies, from sociology, how they overlap and how they vary? Yeah, I mean, some of it can get kind of wonky. I mean, if you, th one of the things I can think about, like the legal classification of media as a non-rivalrous public good, which means um, my enjoyment of a film or a television program does not impinge on your enjoyment because I buy it. That You can't not buy it, right? Everybody is still able to. So there are different ways in which you have to consider um, different products economically. Um, and then there are, I mean, there are all kinds of dimensions. How do you deal with the idea of quantifying stardom or th thinking about how that impacts labor? I mean, we have so many unemployed people in the guilds and a very, very tiny percentage that are constantly in demand and can command $20 million a film when some people can't even be employed. So there are almost impossible to deal with dimensions of labor in when you're dealing with human capital, right? Um, you know more about that than I do. Um, and I think when you just start to combine different legal constructs, different labor constructs, different sociological constructs, and of course the cultural elements of dealing with a cultural commodity um, and the long history of this cultural commodity as a huge business. Film and media is the second largest export in America, second only to aerospace. So, you know, and weapons of war. And you can say that it is quite a weapon of war in itself, media. So, I mean, there are there are all different kinds of considerations that when you it, you you need to it deserves its own area of industry study. Now, you mentioned the fact that a lot of people were hunting for materials to teach with, and that now and other books come out that mm -hmm. does similar work. Mm -hmm. Why is this? Why is what? Why has there been this absence? in the past, before your work? I don't know. I think that um, it it was b work that was being done. That's what we were talking about in the book, in the intro. All of this work was being done. It just wasn't being um, kind of collected and cultivated and thought about in connection with or in relationship to each other. And all of these conversations were taking place. We just thought it's time that they be put into dialogue with one another and we can enrich our own understanding of how we do our work when I'm thinking about the sociological traditions that have helped formulate media industry work and the economic traditions and kind of think about how many dimensions there are. And I don't know, it just kind of seemed like a time to that it just seemed obvious to us and we also weren't um you know we were at a point also i will, will say most people advised us not to do it um because of 
it's really interesting because of the place we were at in our career in that um, an edited collection doesn't really matter for tenure as much as writing two peer-reviewed articles, which I think is such a farce because in our discipline, edited collections often set the terms for debate or often really map out a field in many ways, you know, with the same power as uh, journal review, journal articles. So, um, I don't know, I thought, I just, I just, we both disregarded that and did it and we were happy that we and did. Away. So what's next on the docket? Um, next is The Empire Strikes Back. And it's, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to call it that. I think I might get, have a little legal problem. <laughs> but I'm looking at um, the ways in which these kind of empire-building regulations or policies move into the space of digital media and telecommunications. Um, and really, what I'm most interested in is this concept of regulatory hangover which is ways in which our policies have not adapted to technology and ways that the technology has kind of outpaced the regulation designed to police it. So that's what I'm really obsessed with right now, thinking about um, net neutrality and privacy and cloud storage and that type, the, the ways in which our um, our technology is evolving to bring us information and media, and our policies are back in another century. I mean, the iPhone is being regulated with policies that were designed for the telegraph, so that's a problem. Tell us about net neutrality. It's a concept that has become quite a public and significant one here in the U.S., for example, but it's a little slippery, isn't it? Um, Slippery how? Lots of folks invoke it or denounce it, oh. but it's not always clear to me that they're talking about the same thing. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to talk about it, which I am going to talk about in your class, um, it's a super wonky thing. I mean, you have to get into Title I and Title II classifications of the telecommunication. That's, no one wants to talk about that. So Tim Wu who is a law professor at Columbia University, came up with this term and has done a lot of work on, you know, as a public intellectual, talking about this, kind of selling this term to the public. Because, no, you know, until the public gets fired up about it, uh, the major, you know, Comcast and Cox and these cable and um, internet providers... Are, have all the power. So really what it is is about um, it's about maintaining common carrier regulations for the internet. So saying that all communication has to be delivered at the same speed no matter who's sending it. So the telephone has common carrier regulations and therefore President Obama's phone call goes out with the same speed as mine. Right? can't discriminate based on who's sending it. That is what we would like, that is what activists would like to preserve for the internet. Right now, we do not have that. So right now, anything goes. And um, when we don't have that, we have um, companies designing what has been 
kind of conceptualized as an express lane for one express lane for higher paying customers and more valuable customers like Google, like AT&T, like Time Warner. And then a, the slow lane, the crappy service for people like Toby Miller, Jennifer Holt, the UC. Barry Holt. Barry, Barry Holt. Baz of the basketball man. The uh, green chicken <laughs> wings guy. Big yes. Bazza. Yeah, exactly. He wants to watch his basketball. He's got to take the slow lane. Yeah, exactly. And that's... Um, that's devastating for any culture or society, as we have seen with everything that happened in in Egypt, in, you know, all over the Arab-speaking world during the Arab Spring, when the government has control or when any entity has control over information that can be disseminated in a culture, that's completely dangerous. So... I think connecting these regulatory issues to matters of not just art and culture, but to issues of freedom and democracy um, is critical for this conversation. And somehow getting above the super wonky stuff and just explaining it on a level that people can digest is very challenging. I guess the whole thing is the internet's meant to be the answer to problems of promotion and distribution access to the creation of culture and its and its sedimentations and that doesn't happen if you have to pay a lot either to send or to receive or both large amounts of data yeah because this common carriage thing goes away as a concept and instead and your information is less important a return to the domination of those yeah. who have the most money to determine what culture gets circulated and how. Yeah, the free press, you know, the press is free for everybody who owns one kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So this is your big deal now. You're going to ride into town. I'm going to ride into town. With my, with, your, with my boots on. You're going to stare down the woman at the other end of the street. Yeah. Men are going to run away and hide. Yeah, as, as usual. They always do. <laughs> Have you been watching that commercial for some insurance company where the two guys start talking to one another, the insurance agent and the dude who's the consumer, and they throw back lines from a journey song, and then finally one of them says, you know, we've just been having a journey moment, and then the band's music plays, and then the guy says, oh God, I can just remember Fresno, 83, there were so many chicks, and then his wife's in the next room and she overhears this, she looks up, he says, it's conspiratorially to the dude from the insurance company, I gotta go. <laughs> This no, I'll watch for that one. Great contemporary U.S. culture. <laughs> worth looking for on YouTube. It is very funny okay. in a sort of stupid guy way, but I actually love it. As Every time it's on, guy. I sort of run from the kitchen. As a stupid guy, I run from the kitchen <laughs> to watch it. Chicks in Fresno, 83. <laughs> of course, this is not how I saw the world in 1983, and I'd never heard of Fresno then. In any event, so the net neutrality thing is big. When you think about how to make interventions, we've talked quite a bit about pedagogy or the desire to be able to provide good materials to teachers that can make an intervention in these areas. You've mentioned Tim Wu as a public intellectual, mm -hmm. getting these terms mm -hmm. tossed about in ordinary speech. What do you see as your way in to this kind of to struggle or, as we're required to call it in the United States, conversation? Um, well, I have taught so many students about this topic and they actually care about it. So I feel like one of my interventions is 
is teaching this in film and media classes that usually focus more on the text or, you know, film as an art form, even film as a political form, there are, this is part of that dimension. So think, this in my area of teaching is important. Um, I, I would like to, I'd like to write this one last <laughs> wonky book and then do more um, trade press type writing so that, um, you know, we can kind of elevate the level of discussion in the public sphere, not just among academics. I think it's so important. And finally, you've got about five minutes left. This happened fast. Many women have said that to me. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. This conversation was definitely brought to you by Journey. <laughs> Moving right along, in the time left to us, Professor Holt, uh, a question about where you see the media landscape in 10 years' time. I asked this in part because the other day I was driving back from the airport with a friend from Mexico. We were being driven by a guy who's a film and TV producer. And he detoured to show my friend Andre Dorce Ramos some of the movie studios. Uh -huh. It was fun. And Andre said, do you think these will exist in 10 years' time? And my friend paused and said, moving from the right lane to the middle lane as he did so, you know, I really don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I think they will. I don't think... I, I do believe in this kind of, you know, spread of user-generated content and a wider space being opened for independent producers with the expansion of distribution platforms. But um, when you're as well financed as the studios are, only th they can afford to put out the type of, I mean, only they can afford to make a movie like John Carter and have it miserably fail and get up the next day and make another one. I mean, John Carter would have wiped anybody else out but these huge studios. So, I don't know, I, I believe they will be. I don't think our, I don't think our media experiences will be the same. I think they will be much more determined by, um, search technologies, by hardware. Um, I don't see many scheduling executives still having their job. Um, but I do think we will still have professional studio content. I don't think, I mean, the world exists on a steady diet of American film and television content. It just does. I mean, so that doesn't that appetite doesn't seem to be diminishing it's it's different appetites that are being developed for how we consume that entertainment and i think that's the interesting thing that will be changing the most so these ownership and control questions with which we began mm -hmm. the transformations that we've seen over the last three decades will remain of importance in your eyes Oh yeah, unless somebody, you know, with some, what word do I say on a podcast? Um, cojones. Cojones 
gets into office and decides to really um, care about this sector of the economy and competition within it. But it's only getting worse, especially with the merging. I mean, look at Apple. Look at the, the merging of hardware and software and content production. I mean, it's only getting more complicated. And to me, that makes the regulatory dimension that much more fascinating. Um, you know, one another part of the book I'm researching is on cloud. All of this kind of digital distribution of television depends on the cloud, right? But the cloud is not um, up in the air and diffuse. It is a very specific geographically located server in some place and they're all over the place and that is where its regulatory policies come from so we might be accessing our content that is stored in I don't know China Sweden Oregon well all of that matters as far as how that data is regulated and that is also causing some major problems and crises. So I think we're going to have to work that stuff out before anything else gets worked out. Yes, the nice amiable environmental concept of the cloud obscures the fact not right. only that 40% of these things are in very grounded mm -hmm. server farms in the United States, but also that the vast majority of them, as far as one can find mm -hmm. out, are powered by coal energy stations mm -hmm. and therefore are extremely dirty things. They're very far from the sweet, natural, yeah. and virtual quality of the ephemeral cloud. Yeah. Yeah, so it's We'll see how that space is viewed by regulators and how that impacts our ability to access entertainment. Well, Jennifer Holt, thank you very much. I thank want to extract you. a promise from you, if I can, which is that when you either reach out for or descend from the cloud long enough to publish this next book, that you will return to the humble pod and once more grace it with your presence. I would be honored. Fantastic.